grab your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. One of the words we hear a lot during the Christmas season is the word peace. There's supposed to be a calm tranquility and quiet stillness this time of year. The snow falling, the fireplace crackling, the lights twinkling, and all the stress just melting away. Is that your experience at Christmas time? I am um, guessing no. It's certainly not mine. Uh, my Christmas season is busy, full of things to do, and with little kids, it's also loud and chaotic and expensive, especially with one on the way. There are Christmas events to attend, stuff to buy, sights to see, sounds to hear. I don't know about you, but I would not characterize this as a very peaceful time of year. But here's the irony with the peaceful Christmas we often see portrayed in movies and then hear in songs today. When I read the original Christmas story in the Bible and in Bethlehem, I don't get the impression that they experienced a whole lot of peace either. Mary and Joseph, think about this, Mary and Joseph are not even married yet, and they're already dealing with the drama of Mary's miraculous, unexpected pregnancy. Think of all the questions and opinions that they heard from family, friends, people in town saying things like, can you believe that? Mary says her baby is a miracle. Yeah, right. Doesn't sound very peaceful. Then they had to travel to Bethlehem for the census, all while Mary was very much with child. You ever thought about that? My wife is 37 weeks pregnant, and I can tell you going on a trip by donkey is the last thing on earth she would agree to do. She would choose to be thrown in prison by Herod before she would travel like that. When they arrived in Bethlehem, do you remember? There was no room for them to stay. So they ended up bunking somewhere out with the animals. And that's when Mary, of all times, that's when Mary went into labor with her first child. And her midwife was a guy she wasn't even married to yet. Doesn't sound very peaceful. Then there's baby Jesus. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. Yes, he was God, the second person of the Trinity who was and is perfectly and fully divine. But he was also human. We've talked about that that word for that incarnation. First of the moment, Jesus assumed or took into his person a human nature alongside his divine nature. So that means being fully human. Jesus was just like any other newborn baby. You ever been around a newborn baby? When you have a newborn baby, there is no such thing as a silent night. Usually, those first few nights are the toughest because the baby's angry, trying to figure out what just happened, how he or she went from warm and snuggled in the womb to this bright, cold, cruel world. (laughs) It's safe to say that Jesus did not sleep in heavenly peace. So that that whole nativity scene doesn't sound very peaceful to me. And think about the shepherds. They had quite the experience, too. They're out in the fields, just like every other night, talking about life. Out, it's calm. It's pitch black, dark. They're, you know, hanging out, doing their job. And all of a sudden, a host of angels showed up, started singing. says they were filled with great fear. I'm sure they were excited and happy when they saw Jesus. But their night, that surprise, doesn't sound very peaceful. Then, not long after Jesus was born, Herod went into a rage over the wise men's betrayal. And he ordered the killing of every baby boy in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, as a result, had to take baby Jesus and flee for their lives to Egypt and live in a foreign land as brand new parents. I think you're getting my point now. 
That doesn't sound very peaceful. So where is the peace in the Christmas story? And all the chaos and fear and confusion that took place with these people, where is the peace? Well, the Bible tells us that the peace in the Christmas story was not in the circumstances or in the various characters, but the peace was in a person, the person of Jesus, God incarnate, the Son in flesh, who Isaiah called the Prince of Peace. So for our second week of Advent this morning, I want to show you how Jesus is peace veiled in flesh. If you've been with us on Sundays, then you know this is a time of year we call Advent. What does that mean? Maybe you grew up in a church like I did or didn't quite call it Advent. Maybe you didn't grow up in church at all. Advent is simply a word. It comes from a Latin word meaning coming. Right? Throughout church history, Christians have set apart the four Sundays before Christmas as the Advent season. It's a time meant to reflect on the first coming of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem, but also a time in which we look forward with longing and with expectation for his second coming. That's the point. And every year, we celebrate Advent with a particular theme here at Blue Valley so that we can look at this this familiar story with a fresh lens. Our theme this year, as you've seen, is called Veiled in Flesh. That line from the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, refers to the miracle again of the incarnation. How Jesus came to the world as God in a human body, divinity and humanity in one person. Last week we took the first Advent candle, which is hope, and saw how Jesus is hope veiled in flesh. Today is the second candle, the candle of peace. So let's look at a famous Christmas passage from the Old Testament And I want to show you how Jesus fulfilled these verses that were written hundreds of years before his birth and how they point us to the peace of Jesus today in an often chaotic world. Look with me at Isaiah Isaiah chapter 9. Let's start in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But... In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, when we hear this passage at Christmas, we typically don't jump in until verse 6, right? That's the famous part. We skip these early verses because there's a lot of history, a lot of context we may not be familiar with. But we really need to get this part in order to get the later part. Notice with me that that first word, the word but. That means Isaiah's making a transition here from what he just said. He just spent the end of chapter 8 talking about the Assyrian invasion that was coming for the northern tribes of Israel. You'll remember from Daniel that the southern part of Israel, which was called Judah at the time, was invaded by Babylon. Babylon took the people of Jerusalem and Judah off into exile. But before that happened, there was another exile. There was another invasion. The Assyrians, another powerful nation, came in and they took the northern kingdom into exile. So the end of chapter 8 is all about bad. It's all about judgment and invasion that's coming on these people in the northern part of Israel, which included two of the 12 tribes called Zebulun and Naphtali. They lived at the northeast part of Israel, and there were two things that made their lives especially hard. The first is that they disobeyed God. When Zebulun and Naphtali took their portion of the promised land, they did not destroy all the people there as commanded. 
they decided to keep some of the people around as slaves. And over time, they buddied up with them and married them and then worshipped their gods. So they committed idolatry, and they were facing God's judgment for their sin. The second difficulty they faced was their geographical location. They were at the tip of the spear, surrounded by enemy nations, and because of their position, when another nation wanted to attack Israel, they were the first to be hit. As a result, they were often intimidated and bullied. So you have these two regions of people who had fallen deeply into sin and were facing God's judgment, and who were also living in continual fear of the nations around them, and who were on the cusp of being taken over and carried off into exile. But despite all that, despite all the bad that had happened and that was still to come, here's what Isaiah says. Look again at verse 1. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In other words, there's hope. There's something good coming for these people. It's not over yet. And then Isaiah does something fascinating to show this point. He changes the names of these lands. Watch this. Listen to these verses again. In the former time, he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You see that in the former time, there's contempt. But in the latter time, they're going to be made glorious. And he's talking about the same land, but now he calls them Galilee of the nations. Now, what's up with that? Why, why does he say that? Well, this is here is a prophetic word. Isaiah is prophesying that this region of Israel, which would be the first to be taken over, would then be the first to be restored. Let's think about this. What do we know about this land, what came of this land called Galilee? Well, watch what we see in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. If you want to flip there, you can. If you want to look on the screen, you can. Matthew 2, verses 19 through 22. It says, right after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt. It says, here's what it says. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of where? Then, Matthew chapter 3, the first time we see the adult Jesus mentioned in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 3.13, says this. Then Jesus came from where? To the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Then one more, Matthew chapter 4, after his baptism, after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, this is how he starts his ministry. Watch this, Matthew 4, 12 through 16. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into where? And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory, watch, of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Then he quotes, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Man, Matthew makes this big connection right there for us. He quotes these very verses from Isaiah and he says, Jesus did that. Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy. Zebulun and Naphtali were redeemed and restored because they were the very lands where the Son of God was raised, lived, and began his ministry. 
Galilee, again, the same piece of crown where God's, blood, God's people's blood was spilt. Where, where God's people had rejected him. Where they'd been utterly destroyed and humiliated by Assyria. Where so much bad had happened. That place becomes center stage for the kingdom of God to come. Jesus does most of his ministry right there in Galilee. He calls his disciples from right there in Galilee. It's important to know that by the first century when Jesus walked the earth, Galilee was still not a great place to live. Again, because of their geography, they were furthest away from Jerusalem and the temple. And because of their history, they had intermarried with non-Jews and were considered impure. So the other Jewish people didn't respect them. And yet, of all the places, this is the place where Jesus, the Son of God, called home. This is the place that saw first the transformation, just as Isaiah prophesied. Because that's how our God works. And what is that transformation that Jesus brought? Well, let's keep going. Look at Isaiah verses 2 through 5. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Man, there's so much imagery going on here. There's all this poetic language used to describe this glory that's coming for these people after all the bad. So what do we see? First we see the image of light shining in darkness. Uh, That's an image the Bible uses a lot. Uh, Darkness always represents evil and the brokenness of sin, whereas light represents God breaking through into the midst of that, his kingdom coming. And ultimately... We know from the New Testament that Jesus was this light. John, he began his gospel like this. He said in John 1, he said, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then later in John, he recorded Jesus saying this about himself. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Next, in verse 3 from Isaiah, we see the image of joy. A nation that was once destroyed and taken captive is now multiplying and increasing in joy. And he uses two metaphors here to describe that joy. One is that of harvest, and the other is that of military victory. In this time period, harvest and military success were two signs that things were going well for you. They were reasons to celebrate. And this is how Isaiah predicts the people will rejoice. He says it's going to be like the day when you gather in all that harvest and when you divide the spoil from the victory. Next in verse 4, we see an image of freedom. He says the yoke is taken away. Those who would terrorize and oppress God's people, their rod has been broken. And Isaiah compares this freedom to a story that Israel would have been very familiar with. It's the story of Gideon defeating the Midianites. You remember that story? At this time in Israel's history when Gideon lived, the Midianites were the bad guys. They were the bullies. They pushed Israel around. They stole their stuff. And so one day God raises up Gideon, a lot of Gideons in there, Gideon to defeat Midian, all right? Do you remember how the story took place? Gideon rounded up 32,000 men to take on the Midianite army, which was 135,000 men. And God says to him, "Ah, I think you got too many guys, Gideon. 
He's like, really? He says, yeah, you got too many. So he shrinks the army down to 10,000 men. And God says, ah, I think you still got too many. He's like, really? So he shrinks it down to 300 men. And somehow by a miracle of God, Israel defeats the Midianite army. And he frees the people from that fear and the oppression they lived under. So Isaiah, he takes that story. He says, hey, you remember that story? Do you remember that? Do you remember what that must have felt like? Guess what? Your freedom will be just like that. All those who want to hurt you will be defeated, and you will have peace. He even takes it a step further in verse 5. This is quite an image here. He says that the freedom from the enemy's hands will be so thorough that their boots and garments they used in war will be used as fuel. In other words, they're not just going to defeat their enemies, but they're going to make them useful. That's stark. (laughs) These verses were what many in this time thought of as peace. Living in a state of war, living in exile, living under God's judgment, they saw peace as simply the absence of conflict. So they would have been completely in line with what Isaiah was prophesying here. Hey, no more war. No more getting beat up on by these other nations. We're going to live in the promised land again. We're going to raise our families. We're going to grow our crops. Everything's going to be great. I love it. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. Verse 6 is where this big twist comes in. Something I'm not sure the people really expected. You see, in the Bible, peace is not merely the absence of conflict. It's, it's more than that. The Hebrew word for peace, a word you saw earlier in a song and a reading, it's the word shalom. Now, you may be familiar with that word. It's the word Jewish people use to greet one another. They say shalom to one another. And that word shalom, while it certainly means the absence of conflict, it also means the presence of well-being. It's not just taking away what's bad, but it's also the giving of what's good. It's, it's, it's wholeness. It's completeness. It means all is right and well. And ultimately, the Bible tells us that shalom comes only from God. So Isaiah, he wanted the people reading this prophecy to remember this, that shalom is not just being without conflict. That's great. But true peace, shalom, is the presence of God. That's what they needed. And here's how he points them to that peace. Look at verse 6 through 7, the part we know. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I know if you you grew up in church, these are familiar verses. We, We instinctively think of these as Christmas verses. But don't miss the significance of this, especially in light of all that context we just covered. Like, I really wanted this one to kind of build this up to this to this moment so we could see how incredibly strange. This would have landed. What is the hope? What is the great peace for Israel in light of all they've been through? Is it this big, crazy, strong warrior, mighty king, this brawler? It's a child. It's a baby. That's going to be your gift. And while this child will be born a human being, that's what that word child means, we notice some unhuman titles for him. First off, we see that Isaiah says the government will be upon his shoulders. 
This tells us that, yes, this child will be some sort of ruler or king that will be Lord over all. The next titles describe what kind of king he will be. It says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This king will rule in a way where he will always know what's right to do. He will have wisdom and will lead his people in the right way. Next, it says he'll be called Mighty God. That's a big one. Obviously, that tells us this child king is not just human but he's also God and this title speaks of his power his might to rule not only does he know what to do but he has the ability to do it next he says he'll be called everlasting father this king will rule for all eternity in a fatherly caring way so not only does he know what to do and have the ability to do it but he'll have all eternity to get it done and lastly it says he'll be called prince of peace This given child, this king, will usher in that shalom peace that the world was created to experience. Like the Garden of Eden. There'll be no more war, no more pain, no more evil, but instead only the full presence of God's blessing. It's not only will this king know what to do, have the ability to do it, have all eternity to get it done, but he'll do it all with peace. Isaiah goes on to say that this king will reign forever. There will be no end to his peace or his shalom, and he will sit on the promised Davidic throne. So so this child, this king, will come from the line of David. And he will rule with justice and righteousness, all of this in fulfillment of God's special promises. Man, think about what a, a lofty prophecy this is. I mean, who on earth could possibly fulfill this promised role? Who could live up to this expectation and bring this into existence for God's people? Well, the answer is only God. Only God could do this, and so only God did it. The second person of the triune God, the Son, stepped down from heaven, took on a human nature, and fulfilled these very verses. That brings us to our first takeaway this morning. Number one, Jesus is peace veiled. In flesh. Jesus is the shalom, the peace that was promised. He was that wholeness, that completeness, the fullness that God had promised his people. And he checks every box from this passage. By the time we get to the New Testament, the authors are screaming to us, This is him. And just so you know, I'm not making this up, I'm not just making stuff up. I'm gonna show you, all right? I'm gonna prove it, okay? We're gonna hit a lot of verses here to make this point. But let's start in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, the angels, they appear to the shepherds after Jesus is born. Here's what they say, Luke 10, 10 through 14. They say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see the echoes there from Isaiah, unto you is born this day, a child, baby. It's in the city of David, which is David's promised throne. He's a savior, but he's also the Christ. That word means Messiah. He is Lord. That word means God. What do the angels cry out as they praise God? They say, peace on earth. Look at the next. Do you remember Simeon? Simeon was that guy waiting in the temple, and Mary and Joseph, they come in to dedicate baby Jesus in accordance with the law. And watch what he says in Luke chapter 2, same chapter. He says, Lord, 
Now you're letting your servant depart in what? Some of y'all fell asleep. Letting your servant depart in what? According to your word. It's according. He knew this was according to God's word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You think Simeon knew about Isaiah's prophecy. But what about those names? Did Jesus fulfill those names? Well, let's see. In John 7, 46, the people of Jesus said, no one ever spoke like this man. In 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Paul says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So Jesus was and is the wonderful counselor. Then in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. In John 10, 30, Jesus said that he and the Father are one. In Colossians 2.19, it says the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. So Jesus was and is the mighty God. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus said in Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Colossians 1 says, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus was and is the everlasting Father. Then in Ephesians 2.14, it says that Jesus himself is our peace. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And in John 16, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have what? Peace. Peace. So Jesus was and is the prince of peace. And don't miss the ultimate way that Jesus was peace veiled in flesh. It has to do with something that Isaiah prophesied, and the New Testament goes on to confirm, that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And we may hear that and we may think... Okay, what, what does that matter? Sure. Why couldn't Jesus have just been God and floated down to the earth and used his infinite divine power to save his people? Why couldn't Jesus have just been a human like all the other prophets and preach the gospel and people get saved? Guys, this, this is so important for us to get, especially right now on Christmas Day. This is so, or Christmas time. This is so important. See, in order for us to be saved, we had to have the incarnation. Jesus had to be both 100% God and 100% man. He had to be God enough to cancel out the payment of our sin on the cross. He had to be God enough to conquer death and walk out of the grave alive. He had to be God enough to enter heaven and be our mediator at the right hand of the Father. But he also had to be human enough to be our representative, the second Adam. He had to be human enough to be tempted in every way like us but without sin and fulfill the law. He had to be human enough to take our place and give us his righteousness. So you see, because Jesus is fully God and fully man, that means our sin has been paid for. Our broken relationship with God has been restored, and we are now his children forever. So Romans 5.1 says it just like this. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the whole point. Jesus was the mediator between God and man to bring us together. This is why Jesus is peace veiled in flesh. 
This is why the incarnation is so important to understand. This is why Christmas is a big deal. Because without the baby in the manger, without God in flesh, we would not be saved. Guys, we wouldn't even be here. None of this would be possible, much less to have any peace. But wait a second. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. If he was really peace, veiled in flesh, if he was really the prince of peace, then why don't we see peace in the world today? Let's understand two things. First, the primary peace that Jesus came to bring was peace between God and man. And he did that. The main reason for his first coming was not to bring kumbaya or to end all the wars. It was to save his people. And he did. But the second thing we need to understand is he's not finished. Part of Advent is also looking forward to his second coming. Jesus is coming back. And when he returns that second time, he will bring shalom in its fullest sense. He will end all war and violence. He will destroy all injustice. He will bring his people together. And we will dwell with him in a perfect world, renewed world forever. But until then, here's our second and last takeaway this morning. Number two, the church is peace displayed in flesh. As Christians, you see, we're the body of Christ. The Prince of Peace lives in us and should be reflected in us. We're also filled with the Holy Spirit who has, as one of his fruits, peace. And we have ultimate peace with God, our creator. So we, of all people, should be people of peace. Peace should be one of the dominant characteristics of our lives in our church. In a world of chaos and suffering, we must display the peace of God that passes all understanding. Man, what an opportunity we have to do that during Christmas season. Remember, peace is not just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of God. It's well-being, wholeness, contentment in Christ. That's what people need to see in us. In all the busyness of the season, people need to see us resting in the peace of Christ. In all the consumerism of Christmas, people need to see us finding contentment in the peace of Christ. In all the distractions of this time of year, people need to see us focused on the peace of Christ. That's the whole point of Christmas, that despite our sin, despite what we deserve, God came here to bring us peace in Jesus. That's why he's the Prince of Peace, and that's why he's peace veiled in flesh. Would you bow your head with me?